3CR would like to acknowledge that we broadcast on the stolen lands of the Wurundjeri and Bunurong people of the Kulin Nation, who are the traditional owners and custodians of the land upon which we live and work. We pay respects to Elders past, present and emerging and extend that respect to other Indigenous Australians who may be in our audience and listening to this broadcast. We acknowledge the continued resilience of First Nations peoples in the face of ongoing colonisation and settlement and that sovereignty was never ceded. This is 3CR Breakfast. Alternative news, analysis and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7am to 8.30am. Good morning, everyone. You are listening to Wednesday Breakfast. I hope that wherever you are, you're easing into the morning as much as possible. Um, I'm Grace and I'm here in the studio with Zoe Sonia and Michaela is helping out in the in the background there. How are you, Sonia? I'm having a good week. Thank you, Grace. How are you doing today? I'm good. Bit of a croaky voice, which I apologise <laughs> for, but, but I'm good. Um, we've got a great show coming up. A pretty a good collection of like lots of different things we'll be hearing about, I feel. Do you want to introduce what we'll be talking um, about? I'll be interviewing a guy called Richard Weatherby um, about something which sounds incredibly boring, climate-related financial disclosure. Um, but he's going to tell us why we should all be worried about it and what the implications of that are. Cool. That sounds great. Um, after that, we're going to be hearing from Annie McLaughlin and um, someone from Ocean, and they're going to be discussing um, seismic blasting in the Otway Basin. And then we're going to be listening to some spoken word from Sarah M. Sulla, who is a Palestinian, Egyptian and Lebanese poet. And then after that, we're going to be listening to Robbie Thorpe and Joe Toscano at the Tanaminawait and Melboihina commemoration um, this year, that 2024 one. Um, so, yeah, we're going to go into some headlines. Yeah, so overnight, or at least over our night, um, Israeli forces in the occupied West Bank shot dead three Palestinians inside a hospital in the city of Jenin. Footage of the commandos responsible seems to show that the commandos disguised themselves as medical staff and civilians. An Al Jazeera reporter on the scene said one can only imagine the terror of patients and staff at the hospital in Jenin. On the same day that the International Court of Justice ruled that Israel could be committing genocide, Australia decided to pause its funding of the UN Agency for Palestinian Refugees after UN employees were accused of being involved in the October 7th Hamas attack. On Saturday, Foreign Minister Penny Wong said that Australia would join nine other countries, or Western, including Canada and the US, in pausing its funding while they wait for a response from the UNRWA. The UNRWA announced that the contrasts of those accused of their involvement in the attacks had been the contracts of those accused of their involvement in the attacks had been terminated, but hadn't provided details on the number of employees involved. 
The decision does seem to be contributing to the increasing deterioration of conditions being faced by Palestinians in Gaza. Scott Morrison has become another politician to profit from AUKUS, a trilateral security partnership between Australia, the UK and the US for the Indo-Pacific region. Australia's former Prime Minister announced this week that he'll be joining DYNE Maritime, a venture capital company focused on emerging military technologies. Despite there being previous Australian MPs and senators to become involved in AUKUS-related business, Morrison could be the one with the closest connection, as he was responsible for for creating the Defence Pact alongside US President Joe Biden and former UK Prime Minister Boris Johnson. Two Aboriginal children have been stranded in the UK since 2020 without passports or visas while their guardianship returned home to Australia. The Chief of the National Voice for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Children and Families said the situation beggared belief that a government agency would allow vulnerable children to be trapped in limbo, away from family and treated like unwanted aliens in a distant country with no family or cultural heritage. Thank you, Sonia. We are now going to go into the song The Hate That Hate, produced by Sister Soldier. Hey, Junior. Where's everybody going? Man, please, 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 finna get our feet up. What? But Master Tom has been good to us. Why are we leaving? Why are we leaving now? Paper to greed. My mind is mine. My- 
And that was the song The Hate That Hate produced by Sister Soldier. So on the 12th of January, the Treasury made available for comments some proposed amendments to legislation governing climate-related financial disclosure, which really does sound as dull as dishwater. But it could have real implications for our ability to hold corporate Australia to account. Joining us to help us understand why is Richard Weatherby. Thanks for joining us, Richard. Now, Richard, many years back, worked with Greenpeace and Friends of the Earth in Europe, but joins us as a concerned community activist. Um, Richard, could you tell us what the changes are that are being proposed? Yeah, so um, essentially uh, it's a change in the reporting regime that um, companies, large companies in particular, uh, will need to comply with over the, I guess, the coming years. And the... The main things, certainly, that I'm interested in and I think that are important for your listeners um, relate to, um, I guess, restricting climate access to climate just, justice from um, you know, ordinary Australians and also um, probably um, the unrealistic assumptions that are included in the changes. So the reporting in particular um, uh, is supposed to help the government with their assessment of the impacts of climate change um, to the financial system, um, but also um, to help them enforce compliance uh, against companies, particularly companies who are involved in greenwashing. Yep. And and um, so so what are the assumptions? What what would the changes be? So the the big changes, um, I guess, relate to um, what the average Australian can do in terms of taking legal action against companies that um, engage in greenwashing during the period of the adoption of these changes to the reporting regime. So what does that mean? I guess it means that um, uh, if, if a company, if a large company starts telling fibs in their reporting about what they're doing uh, to uh, alleviate climate change, we won't be able to take them uh, to court in a civil action um, you know, to, to make sure that they can stop doing what they're doing. Um, so in a sense, companies are getting a free pass, particularly fossil fuel companies, to um, uh, continue what they're doing, which is to essentially, um, you know, spin, um, you know, do advertising, which really isn't true. And, you know, secondly, I think the way that they're going about doing the reporting is very unrealistic in their assumptions about climate change. What the changes mean is that would it be that the reporting is no longer made available to the public or is it just that we can't take action on the reporting? It, yeah, so so the reporting is going to be introduced over a three-year period from financial years um, 25 to 27, so 20, 2025 to 2027. Mm -hmm. And during that period, essentially, we will be able to see, um, you know, what, what companies are lodging with ASIC with respect to their climate change commitments, but we won't be able to take civil action if there's errors or um, misrepresentations in those reports during that period. So, so in a sense, if, the, if those companies decide that, um, you know, they're going to guess a little bit or fudge some of the figures or tell a few fibs about, um, you know, what they're, they're planning to do, or telling their shareholders some things which may not be quite right, then really the government's, you know, saying we can't hold them to account, um, particularly around um, some of the detail 
in that reporting. So that's really restricting Australians' ability to hold these companies to account. And could you give us some examples of, I don't know, actions that might have to, uh, that would not have taken place or might not have taken place if these changes were in place at the moment or had already been put into place? Yeah, so there's there's a couple of really good examples that are in the in the media and have been in, in the media for a little while. One of them is a an action that uh, that's being um, taken, a civil action that's being taken by uh, a shareholder um, group in relation to Santos and um, Santos's, uh, I guess, greenwashing that they're doing in some of their reporting and some of their advertising, which is really quite a serious action that's being moved forward. And um, the second one would really be the, the Greenpeace action that's being taken against Woodside for somewhat similar activities that Woodside has, has been undertaking. These are quite major landmark uh, actions, civil actions. And, um, you know, I think fossil fuel companies in particular are, um, you know, think that they can uh, do whatever they like, say whatever they like and um, promote themselves as, you know, being clean and green. Um, but, you know, ultimately, you know, the public should be able to look at that and take action if, uh, if it's not true. Now, you mentioned that there's some unrealistic assumptions that the government seems to be basing this um, on. Could you talk a little bit about what you mean by that? Yeah, so as part of the reporting, um, so the reporting essentially adds an additional what's called a climate sustainability report um, so that companies have to add that report into the existing reporting that they provide to the government. And so in this sustainability report, um, there there are some... Uh, mandated approaches that, they, that companies need to take in, in terms of making those assessments. Um, one of the things, one of the key things that um, they're being asked to do um, is to uh, look at the, the 1.5 degree increase in temperature with re relation to climate change and, um, uh, I guess, factor that into their assessments, into their models, into their scenarios, um, and, you know, from that assess what the impact of climate change is going to be on their business, but also on their products that they provide um, to Australia and to the world. So, for example, if you're exporting coal or gas, then there's emissions from that that ultimately need to be modelled and taken into account. Um, and what I think, and I think what, you know, a number of other people and organisations think is that those models are just unrealistic. So, for example, the 1.5 degree uh, scenario, so, you know, the increase of 1.5 degrees from, um, you know, 1850 to um, 1900, that, that we really have passed that figure. And there's a lot of science now that, that is, you know, underpinning that and saying, yes, you know, that's gone, that's lost. We, you know, we're, we are headed, you know, rapidly towards a two-degree warming. And, um, but... The, the um, what's in this uh, proposed legislation is is that companies just have to use this 1.5 degree. Now, that's that's unrealistic. It's not real world, um, and it presents companies with an opportunity to do some more greenwashing because it's easier to model and um, you know meet targets if the targets are lower. So that's the first thing. Um, and the second thing is the government saying, well, you also have to have another target, which is a higher target. Um, as to include that in your models, so you know it's more of a what what if things go bad? Um, but companies are free to choose what that figure is, what that model is. 
which so, is just so sorry great. let me just understand that so basically they can work with a four degree um target rather than a two degree target for example yeah exactly but they're free to choose so so for example if a company if it wants to you know i guess you know make things easier they can say well we'll use the 1.5 degree and our second one our second model that we have to use we'll just choose two you know that mm -hmm. makes it easier you know it doesn't look too bad um you know we can adjust our risks and our reporting accordingly according to that rather than in the real world what what science is telling us is that there are models which are genuinely worst case models over the you know the coming 50 100 years um, that that are much higher. In, in fact, if um, you know we continue to pollute the the world with with carbon over the next fifty to one hundred years, the worst case scenario, if it's business as usual, given the latest science, is that you know we're looking at you know four yeah. four degree four point five degree increases in in temperature, and really the companies need to be mandated. There needs to be a mandate that says use the worst case scenario in addition to you know a lower figure because you know otherwise this reporting is just garbage so basically oh, sorry i'm a, i just want to try and make sure that i've got this clear and that listeners have got it clear as well so basically they can say that if they don't meet the 1.5 degree target regardless of what they're doing really then the the worst case will still just be two is that right? Well, no. So, so the government is okay. So the, the government is saying it's, it's, it is complicated. So I'm sorry about this. Um, yeah. It's so the government is saying as part of your reporting, you need to model according to two figures. So two mm -hmm. two increases in temperature. The first one is 1.5, and the second one is whatever you want. But what I'm saying is that 1.5 is gone. It's lost. Yeah. We've we've shot past it, or we're shooting past it. So why don't you choose a figure like two? Because that's more realistic. But also that second higher figure, instead of just, you know, pick a number out of the air, yep. companies should actually, you know, from a responsible risk perspective, say, well, what's the worst case sure. that we should be modelling on? And frankly, it's that worst case is much higher. So basically they're going to be reporting in a way that makes the world look safer than yep, it actually exactly. is. Uh, exactly. Great. Now, um, can you explain to us um, what listeners can actually do? Is there anything that we can do about these proposed changes to the legislation at the moment? Ah, uh, yeah, for sure. So, so until the 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 the, um, the, the current round of consultations, uh, so public consultations, um, is being carried out by Treasury, so Federal Treasury, um, on their website. Um, is the materials um, which I guess describe the changes to this legislation. Um, it's it's a riveting read, um, but it's uh, I guess it's. Um, uh, I presume you know, that that was sarcasm there. <laughs> um, uh, certainly, there are some there are some key points that jump out if you just read the summary. Um, and I, I guess to me, the, those those are the two that I've mentioned. So the justice issue and the the unreal, unrealistic targets and unrealistic assessment are the two that jumped out to me. Now, in terms of so so the Treasury web, website, there's a consultation section that's in there, 
Unfortunately, the this closes on the sixth of February, which is not long. Yeah. Um, the so what, about a what week. they about a week. And what they're saying is that um, you know they're not looking for you know war and peace in terms of submissions. Um, they really want people to keep their submissions to four pages or less. So, you know, the shorter the better. Um, in terms of, um, you know, are there any templates or are there any websites with forms or, you know, things that people can just sign and say, OK, I disagree? Um, at the moment, it's not that easy. Um, it hasn't been taken up by, you know, the, I guess, you know, some of the, the, the usual suspects. So, you know, there's nothing on the Greens site or anything like that. Um, but there are examples, um, you know, a, a quick Google, Google search on, um, you know, climate-related financial disclosure will show some of the concerns that certain bodies have um, from, because it's, you know, open to the public. Um, what I would say is, is um, if you are concerned, then um, uh, do go to the Treasury site. Just look at the, the, the summary, which is, which is fairly short, um, and as I say, I think there's a few points that will jump out to you around justice mm-hmm. uh, and also around, um, you know, I guess the reporting um, regime and, the, you know, those details about, you know, the, um, the, the target um, temperatures. And we'll definitely um, put the, a link to that Treasury, um, the Treasury consultation on our show notes for, the, for today's show. So listeners will yep. be able to uh, catch up with it there. I'm sorry, carry on. Oh, no, it's okay. Um, so the, the other thing I'd say is that, um, you know, there has been quite a bit of concern voiced across the community about this, particularly about the justice issue. So um, the New South Wales Bar Association, um, you know, expressed alarm that, um, you know, the the community isn't going to be able to take civil action on some of the details of this reporting, particularly around greenwashing, for at least a three-year period. And, you know, the way that these things go is that, um, uh, you know, three-year period and then... Court cases know, drag on. Yeah. So um, so there are there are community bodies that are, that are concerned about this. And I know that EDO has... Um, uh, um, EDO also... being the Environmental Defenders Organisation. Exactly. Exactly. Um, uh, have um, uh, submitted in a previous round of this of this consultation, um, you know, quite a number of concerns. So that's probably one to look at as well. Um, that, and again, that's that's probably a good search on EDO and climate related financial disclosure. We'll, we'll show you that. Um, <clears throat> but uh, it's it, it's quite disturbing that um, you know we're having we're just not able to take action. And this includes not just ordinary people, it includes organisations like EDO or Greenpeace or um, stakeholder um, activism. So, you know, where you've got stakeholders who are trying to make companies change um, and, and so on. You know, we're not able to take civil action if there's, you know, these reports contain fibs, big fibs. Um, it's, uh, it's, it's quite disturbing. It sounds really worrying. Thank you so much for joining us today, Richard. So we've been chatting with Richard Weatherby, a community activist concerned about proposed changes to climate-related financial disclosure laws. So that's the Google terms, climate-related financial disclosure. You can see the draft legislation at, this is a 
awkward URL, treasury.gov.au slash consultation slash C2024 hyphen four six six four nine one. But you might be better off looking at the New South Wales Bar Association or the Environmental Defenders Organization. And we're now gonna hear a track Now I Don't Need Your Love by Lucky Love and the Gospel. Tonight I think I'm more than enough for you. You're not worth my precious time. Can believe why you put me from but tonight it's me, myself, and I From this point of lights, I won't come home My lips are silk, my ass is fire Fire, fire, fire But you come and go Tonight, 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 oh Tonight it's me, myself, and I From this point of lights, I won't come home My lips are silk, my ass is fire but you come and go And I work so hard to please you all To be the one you will bring home But now I'm better on my own I think I'm more than enough for you You're not worth my precious time Can't believe why you put me through But tonight it's me, myself and I From this point of lights I won't come home My lips are silk, my ass is fire But you come and go Tonight, tonight, tonight Tonight it's me, myself and I On this bright light, I won't come home My lips are sealed, my ass is fire But you come and go And I work so hard to please you all To be the one you will bring home But now I'm better on my own space for women and gender diverse people to thrive. The Queen Victoria Women's Centre is now taking applications for their inaugural Feminist Historian in Residence. Over 12 months, revisit their historical records to uncover fresh stories and perspectives. The centre encourages proposals that challenge their history from an intersectional viewpoint and grapple with the complexities of colonisation. 
To apply, head to qvwc.org.au, closing Friday, February 16th. Queen Victoria Women's Centre is a 3CR supporter. Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander children aged 3 and 4 can access 15 hours per week of free kinder. Kinder programs provide culturally safe places for children and families and are led by qualified teachers. Enroll for 2024. Speak with your preferred kinder service or local council today about how to register for a place. Corey Kids Shine at Kindergarten. Find out more at vic.gov.au forward slash kinder. Authorised by the Victorian Government Melbourne. A 3CR supporter. You're listening to 3CR with Zoe and Grace. And that was the song Now I Don't Need Your Love by Lockie Love and the Gospel. We're now going to go and hear a an interview that originally aired on Solidarity Breakfast on the 20th of January. Um, and it was a chat between Annie McLaughlin and Gretel Carroll from Greta Carroll from Ocean. Um, and they're going to talk about some of the groups and people who are fighting to block seismic testing in the Otway Basin. Um, and they'll discuss some of the consequences for ecosystems and the environment if it goes ahead. Thanks very much for having a chat with me, Greta. You're from Ocean, which is a coalition of environmental organisations that's been working to raise people's awareness of uh, the proposed seismic blasting in uh, the Southern Ocean along the Otway uh, Rim. And I was wondering, can you give my listeners some understanding of what uh, what's at stake here? Yeah, absolutely. Thanks so much for having me on. So yes, I'm from Ocean, the Otway Coastal Environmental Action Network. And we are currently campaigning, trying to raise awareness about a proposed seismic blasting um, permit that uh, is in at the moment with Noxema. Uh, so it's an area, two companies, TSG and Schlumberger, so two international data companies, have put in a proposal to 3D seismic blast an area that's 4.5 million hectares in the Otway Basin. Um, and that area passes through two marine parks, whale migration routes, the Bonnie Upwell, so that is a huge nutrient upwelling that fuels the marine food web um, and as well as on our really beautiful and very ecologically important Great Southern Reef. That's extraordinary, isn't it? Uh, and especially when you consider that there's the backdrop is that uh, Australia is supposed to be, and the world is supposed to be moving away from uh, fossil fuel and this is just a, a, a complete... Uh, attack on nature. Yeah, absolutely. So seismic blasting, looking for oil and gas reserves under the seafloor, is the first step in new oil and gas exploration. And as you said, the science says we can't have new oil and gas if we're to stay below 1.5 degrees of warming. We can't be looking for more opportunities to extract oil and gas from from the earth. So we're all saying no. Communities along the Otway Coast, all down the western Tasmanian coast as well, are standing up and using their voices to say no. So that's, it's very inspiring. Yeah, well, it's interesting too because, it's as you said, Ocean is a coalition of environmental organisations as well as First Nations groups. Mm-hmm. 
yeah, we there's there's many groups who are, are part of this campaign. So there's Surf Rider Foundation Australia, there's Friends of the Earth, there's the Australian Marine Conservation Society and Port Ferry Fight for the Bite, as well as Patagonia. Um, and then also SOPEC, so the Southern Ocean Protection in, in Embassy Collective, which is a Gundich Mongol um, ocean protection group. Um, and they're very loud and very prominent in this campaign. Yeah, uh, I was looking at uh, even the words uh, Kuntapu, which is whale song lines. Mm. Yeah, we're really lucky we have uh, Yaren Cousins Bundle, who's a Gunditjmara woman. She's also a whale dreaming custodian and leads SOPEC. Um, she's been sharing Kuntabul, the who's the female southern right whale, um, sharing parts of the Kuntabul song line through this process, uh, sorry, through this protest. And that's been a really special addition and um, voice in this campaign. Now, you've uh, been um, running uh, in, uh, information sessions as well as other uh, um, information raising uh, e events right across the communities. Uh, and in fact, there's going to be a major event uh, tomorrow in Warrnambool, I mean, there's today in Port Ferry and uh, tomorrow in Warrnambool and then going on to Portland on the 27th. But can you give us an idea of the reactions? Do people know about what's going on? Mm, yeah, so we are in the middle of our Great Ocean Rescue a campaign, which stretches across January with events that started at the beginning of January in Barwon Heads and has moved along west at the western coast of Victoria out to Portland. And no, for the most part, communities don't know what seismic blasting is and that's part of our work is raising awareness. And it's also not their fault. You know, a lot of politicians, people in Canberra, when Ocean have travelled to Canberra to talk about seismic blasting, a lot of our politicians don't know what seismic blasting is, what the practice entails and what the risks are to marine safety and, and our marine life. So that's pretty scary. Um, but when people do know what seismic blasting is, they're very, everyone's been supportive of this campaign. No one wants this campaign. No one wins. Coastal people don't win. Fisher people don't win. The only people who win, if this is approved, are the two multinational information or data companies. Um, so we've had screenings, so we're screening a film that was put together by Surfrider Foundation called Southern Blast, which is a great, um, informative and very beautifully shot film. And then we've had rallies as well in Ocean Grove and Apollo Bay last weekend. And tomorrow, as you said, in Warrnambool, we have a big paddle out, which is going to be so much fun. Um, we are meeting at the breakwater around 1.30. There'll be live music. And local band Southern Ocean Sea Band will be playing, which will be a lot of fun. We've got some speeches kicking off at two, and we'll start our paddle out at two thirty. Yeah, um, the uh, it's really quite disturbing that uh, so few people know about how intrusive this could be. I mean, we've been seeing uh, whales uh, becoming dislocated, not knowing where to go, and then ending up on uh, and beaching and dying effectively. Um, and uh, people are being saying, oh, they don't know why this would be so. But 
that's being a bit ingenuous, isn't it? Mm. Yeah, so while seismic blasting as a practice has been happening for decades off our horizons where we can't see it, the research is relatively new and the research has only come about because fisheries were reporting huge losses in their catches or whole scallop beds dying following seismic blasting events. And researchers, marine researchers, then began looking at the impacts of seismic blasting. And as you said, it does deafen whales. Um, and there are 25 different whale species that move through this particular um, application zone that they're looking to blast in the Otway Basin. But it also kills krill. And as far as the research has shown, it creates a hole in the biomass up to 1.2 kilometres around every single blast. Um, and the only reason it's 1.2 kilometres is because that's as far as they looked. We don't actually know the extent of that hole in the biomass. Um, we just know that as far as researchers looked, every single krill was dead. Oh, my goodness. Um, so we have some research that on some other species, particularly commercial fishing species, but I think it's safe to assume that if the foundation of the marine food web, our krill and our plankton, as well as the largest mammals that have ever existed on Earth, our, our blue whales, are being affected by the practice that all species along that food chain are, are affected. Now, the uh, coastline that you've been having your events at are mm. prime uh, holiday resorts. Now, mm. uh, um, there's this sort of weird uh, dislocation between the main cities and the hinterlands. Uh, mm. But because it's summer and because these are key locations for people to take uh, summer retreats, you must have been getting quite a lot of reaction to your campaign. Yeah, all positive, thankfully, but I think that's part of the way in which we're campaigning. It's not angry and it's not violent. Um, it's very informative, very welcoming, um, but it has also been very special to say to people who are sitting in cafes, say thank you for coming to our home, enjoying our coastline, and would you join us in protecting it? Because we love it too, just as much as you do during your holidays. And we've had people stand up in the cafes and applaud or take information slips and then come and join the film screening that night. Some people leave their cafes and join us for the walk down the main street. It's been very inspiring. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, it's pretty important stuff. Um, what has reaction from uh, government level, federal, state and local? Yeah, so we are lucky that we've had local councillors joining. We have um, some Greens members travelling down from Melbourne for the paddle out tomorrow, which is great. We, the, the decision is in the hands of the Resource Minister, Madeline King. So we are writing to her office, members of the community are writing to her office through our campaign. Um, and we haven't had a response yet. Yeah, it's a bit disturbing because we've had um, quite um, disturbing uh, acceptance of seismic blasting in Western Australia at the um, Burrup Hub, and mm. we've just had uh, a rather disappointing, um, uh, not quite the same thing, but the the uh, the gas pipeline, Santos pipeline decision against the Tiwi Islanders 
And we've also, in sort of in the background, we've got New South Wales um, deciding that it's all okay to uh, chop down native forests. Uh, there's a battle on, isn't there? Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, it is really important to recognise um, the practices that are still going ahead in the Barrett Peninsula and also the most recent decision to approve the Santos pipeline through uh, the Tiwi Islands um, because what's happening in those parts of the ocean is also, it's all one ocean, you know. It, and as we stand up in the coastal communities, as coastal communities down here for our Great Southern Reef, it is really important that we're also standing in solidarity um, on other, in the other front line. Um, and it is becoming more difficult for environmental activists. We've had change in laws, there's recent um, changes in protocol in, in the logging in Tasmania where machinery doesn't have to be switched off if civilians are on site, where if um, both activists are on site. So there's people's lives that are becoming at greater risk. But we have won in the past. We won in the fight for the bike campaign. And I think what's telling is that this application permit stops almost immediately at the South Australian border. And I think all companies know um, that we really care about that area. And so this is our opportunity to unite and show that we also care about this part of our ocean too. Yeah, there's a world. There's a world to be won, isn't there? And uh, you, you can't not fight. It ha you have to fight. Uh, the um, what do you want my listeners to do to be um, helpful in a positive outcome? Oh, thanks for that question. So, if you are in the area, um, come on down to our paddle out in Warrnambool. It's going to be huge. It's going to be a lot of fun. Paddle outs always are such a beautiful way to unite in the ocean whilst we stand up for the ocean. Um, you can head to our website, so oceanocean.org.au, um, and you can take action there. We have a link to um, a survey. You can send a letter to your Member of Parliament through Surfrider Foundation. There's a link to that too. We have the Citizens Protection Declaration, which is... Um, led by SOPEC, so it's an Indigenous voice for caring for sea country. <laughs> um, and then we also have petitions around abolishing what's called the SPA, which is the Special Prospecting Authority, which is the kind of permit that uh, these two companies, um, TGS and Schlumberger, have applied for. So that's outside the portfolio that the Minister for Resources um, announces at the beginning of each year. This is a different kind of permit. You're listening to 3CR, and that was a really great discussion between Annie McLaughlin from Solidarity Breakfast and Greta Carroll from Ocean um, chatting about the government's plans to use seismic blasting in the Otway Basin. And we're now going to go to the song Indigenous Land by Dreaming Now. Everywhere we walk upon in this world, one indigenous group or another has once lived there before for thousands and thousands of years. One of the most intricate and respectful ways to inhabit that place. We need to remember that. You're on indigenous land, original clans, since beginning of man, countless years out on this land. Living so grand, allowed to commence, intrinsic alarm, never disappear.
thousand plus. And that was the song Indigenous Land by Dreaming Now. Such a great song. I loved that one. So we are now going to hear an interview between Di Cousins from the Spoken Word Show and Australian poet Sarah Saler. Sarah's uh, full-length poetry collection, Flirtation of Girls, has, has just come out. Um, and she brings to her poetry her experiences of her Palestinian, Egyptian and Lebanese roots. Um, and to, to quote the back cover, the book brings the politics of occupied homelands into sharp, unapologetic focus. And you can listen to the Spoken Word show on Thursdays from 9am till 9.30. Hi, Di. Thanks so much for having me. Well, I'm so glad uh, you're able to find the time to be on the program. Um, you've been, you're an Australian poet and writer of Palestinian, Lebanese and Egyptian heritage and I understand you've been very busy lately. Uh, yes, obviously with everything going on in Gaza at the moment, Palestinians uh, in Australia and across the world have been advocating on multiple fronts, doing everything that we can to try and stop and, and call for an immediate ceasefire. As you can imagine, that means a lot of lobbying, a lot of, you know, with politicians in, in parliamentary hallways. It means um, trying to uh, get our story out there in media, trying to uh, organize and, and uh, raise awareness amongst communities and build solidarity. So there's there's been a lot, a fair, a fair bit going on. Right. And um, so tell me, which are the organisations that uh, are representing the interests of Palestinians at the moment? Well, one of the um, organisations that's doing a lot of important work is the Australia-Palestine Advocacy Network. And the Australia-Palestine Advocacy Network, or APAN, as it's affectionately known, um, has been uh, doing a lot of sort of critical media and policy and, and political lobbying work, which I think is really needed at the moment, especially in the absence of uh, humanitarian aid being able to go through for the, for the most part in Gaza. So, you know, talking to politicians, bipartisan uh, efforts to, can, you know, to try and ensure that we reach a, not only a ceasefire, as I mentioned earlier, but also uh, an, at calling for an end to the occupation uh, of, of Palestine altogether. So I certainly encourage people who are interested in doing something to support APEN, um, you know, financially or with resources, time, skill, that sort of thing, always looking for volunteers. And another organization would, would be um, BDS, so these are, which is the Boycott Divestment Sanction Organization. Uh, BDS essentially um, encourages people to look at uh, the sort of uh, companies and organizations that you might be affiliated with and ensure that they're not complicit in what is happening in Gaza at the moment. We're recording in mid-December 2023 and I think it's up to 18,000 people killed already and it's, it's just terrific. Indeed. I mean, look, there is obviously, we are feeling a lot of trauma and a lot of grief at the moment. And it, it's it's getting, it has been really hard to function for quite some time now. I'm not, I'm not going to sugarcoat it. But at the same time, you know, my, in wanting to hold space and honor all of these feelings that we are collectively, you know, coming together and, and feeling, I also um, want to sort of 
reinforce that it's really not about us, but it's about the people on the front lines who are doing everything they can, fighting every single day and losing so much, losing their lives, losing their loved ones, losing their homes. And for me, that's what I think is, is keeping us going because we, we owe uh, people in Gaza, Palestinians in Gaza, we owe them endurance. We owe them the discipline and the commitment to keep going even when we're tired um, because this is a genocide. And uh, I think there's really no, we, we have no other option, no choice but to keep fighting and to keep pushing and keep calling for that ceasefire. And anyway, one of the ways that the artistic community channels trauma and deep experiences through poetry, and um, congratulations on your your first full length collection, "The Fertation of Girls." Uh, what? How do you say the title in Arabic? Uh, it's Ghazal al Banat. Wonderful. And uh, so, tell me, what brought you to poetry? Well, my poetry origin story is sort of a funny and a funny accidental one <laughs> um, if we can call it that I you know I've been writing for as long as I can remember and I think you know writing in various disciplines but particularly focused on sort of non-fiction and academic writing and at one point uh, in you know about a decade ago now I was feeling quite clogged, you can call it writer's block, and a friend suggested that we attend uh, this event called the Bankstown Poetry Slam. It had just started. It was its first iteration, first event um, back in February 2013. And I, you know, I was intrigued and I went along and I just loved what, you know, what the event had to offer. Essentially, the Bankstown Poetry Slam now, 10 years later, is the largest regular slam in the Southern Hemisphere. And what I especially love about the Bankstown Poetry Slam is the fact that it was founded by people, um, you know, a number of two young poets, rather, from Western Sydney who wanted to create a space that was accessible, that was non-hierarchical, that allowed, you know, made poets of all backgrounds feel really welcome and feel empowered to come and share their poetry and their stories, whether it was about, you know, family or love or friendship or even um, coming out or uh, war or what was happening in Palestine or Australia's inhumane refugee policies. You know, all of these things were issues, were very common topics that these poets um, felt strongly about and used poetry as a platform to speak about in a way where, you know, it wasn't subjected to any institutional restrictions, any elitism that can happen, you know, in the arts sometimes, or any sort of gaze, external gaze uh, that dictated the parameters for these these poets. Um, so, yeah, I think it was an amazing self-determined space uh, that has, you know, just gotten bigger and better in the last, over the last decade. So that for me was really, it resonated and I ended up, you know, continuing my poetry journey there, um, being challenged as a poet, writing and, and being challenged and growing as a poet by my peers and colleagues. And after that, I was propelled to keep going, uh, you know, workshops and, and just um, mentorship and, and writing and putting myself out there and publishing. And now here we are uh, publishing a, a full-length uh, collection, which, uh, you know, I, I am so privileged uh, to be able to say.
Yes, no, it's a it's a beautiful uh, book and uh, and published by the University of Queensland Press, which is a, a really serious publisher. So congratulations. And what were your influences in writing poetry? You said you've been writing all your life, but were there particular poets that you used to read that, you know, whose voices inspired your voice? many. Uh, I, I wouldn't even know where to begin. I think with my, you know, journey as a as a poet, when I started to sort of take it seriously and realize that, you know, even though it started out as an accident, I really just, I really love it and I want to keep going. Um, there were poets and contemporaries like Worth and Sheer and uh, Sophia Hello and Fatima Asghar, um, as well as uh, poets here in so-called Australia that I have looked up to and loved for a very long time, including Tony Birch as one of those poets. But I also think growing up in a household, you know, an Arabic-speaking household uh, of, of mixed background, which you, you already uh, introduced, I was very um, lucky to, grow, you know, grow up in a household of storytellers and uh, people who, you know, my, my parents were very politically active, but also really loved the arts. And so there was always Arabic movies in the background or um, Arabic songs and, and music. And, and music is often, our, our Arabic songs and music are often also poetry, very, very much um, based in uh, sort of formal uh, poetry. So the likes of Fayrouz and Abdel Halim Hafiz and Um Kalthum, who are um, Arab icons. Uh, so when I grew up listening to these um, artists, I think even though I didn't always necessarily completely understand, because Arabic was my second language, I didn't always understand, you know, exactly what, um, you know, I didn't, I didn't have a, you know, a sort of really strong grasp of the language and didn't always understand the content of the poems. They were so rhythmic and so musical and so, you know, I just loved the way that they it invoked a sort of feeling, and I think, in a way, I almost took that on board and intuitively applied those lessons of Arabic poetry and Arabic musicality and, and you know, the malleability of language and rhythm and rhyme and found that, you know, it kind of found its way into my own poetry and my own writing in English. So certainly those were some of, I think, the most formative foundational inspirations for me. So let's go to some poems. Which poem would you like to read first? I'd love to read All the Places My Father Lost His Faith and share that with you. I heard it was one of your favorites. Yes, uh, I although... thought it was a beautiful poem. Yeah, go go <laughs> ahead. Hard, hard to pick a favorite, I know. <laughs> um, all right, I will, I will begin. All the Places My Father Lost His Faith. My father lost his faith at the stale fringes of the brown carpet in the apartment. At his 15-hour shift, but always made it to bedtime, tended to us with his tales of Sinbad the Adventurer. My father lost his faith at Camp David, at the cold peace at Abdel Nasser's pan-Arabism eroding. My father lost his faith at my grandfather's goodbye, begging us to go somewhere safer. My father lost his faith during delayed takeoff. He missed my grandfather's death by an hour. My father lost his faith in the country of men. He cried with the love reserved for sons when all he had were daughters. 
My father lost his face at the cafe, longing for the kind of cushiony black tea that bathes each rib. My father lost his face at his accent, scratching its way out of his multilingual throat at Estop, at Burger, at Hundred Percent, at the rejection letters that came in the dozens at his degree. He pulled out like a birthmark, a covenant, an eleventh finger, all the generations of men before him in the folds of that paper. My father lost his face at my thirtieth birthday dinner. Red velvet and his leukemia diagnosis delivered that day. At the hospital, where the nurse kept missing the vein, his arteries recoiling with each tap. My father lost his face. The windowless rooms, resplendent rows of pokies calling, a calling of fathers everywhere. My father lost his face when we lost the house. An immigrant's downfall. Our last night in it, my father cried. His cries, little lonely fires, they cling to me like a legacy. I should have cut him in half. See what's eating at his rind. What parting of seas sutured him together. His want for a life of more. I think I was terrified of seeing him then. It would have been my first. Lesson in loving something that stopped knowing how to love me in return. Well, breathtaking work. Thank you. Yeah. And、um, did it take long to write? You know, it really depends with each poem.、Uh, sometimes a poem comes to me because of a, you know, a word or another poem that I read that I. Particularly, you know, inspired by、um, sometimes, you know, it, it's a it's a poem I've read and loved. Other days, it's a form that I, you know, want to try and that's on my mind, or even an issue that's on my mind. So I think、uh, it really depends. You know, the business of poetry it's just a, just as much about、um, making and constructing and you know assembling and reassembling words and language and commas and punctuation as much as it as it is about deconstructing and dismantling. So, you know, I think when it comes down to it,、uh, some poems are already almost already finished, and you just have to excavate and refine them, and that can take up you know a little bit of time. And there are other poems that take forever because I agonize over a single word, and that is. You know, just part of the process. It's continuous.、Uh, poems, I think, don't really end. You just need to know when to exit the poem,、um, and I think that you know that that's part of the process, understanding that. So this one in particular would have taken, I think, from memory, a fair bit of time to really just get that right. Okay. So where will we go to next? What would you like to read? I would love to read、um, City. City or city of Greece, so there's a little play on words there.、Um, city is the word city in English, and city is、uh, an Arabic word for grandmother. So it's called city of Greece. To Walpani, to my faltering, the figs that fall here untethered to the reddened sun. Their blemished skin I peel and peel. Their teaching and I learn nothing. The brink. That took us away from you. There is always spring. The jasmine bushes in the rearview mirror. The roaming of your lap palms pressed sweaty traps. The sifting 
and I find nothing. The streets I walk that do not know you, the way the rich gorge on the world, the leaving that was your last indignity. The agent at the airport who put our father in a locked room made him beg. The breaking news banner on the TV announcing we cannot return home. The nation that will not be home. The balcony shutters keeping out the night and all its creatures. The realization that I will only be free when I want nothing. In San is Arabic for human, its root, Nessa, N-A-S-A, which is to forget, so to be human is to forget, the forgetting of the past so that country may survive, us may survive itself, the past and its grudges in the knots of our back, the language that is trapped in itself, the city, city of desperation, city of grief, city of AK-47, the expectation that someone like me only knows of death and bomb and trauma and war and bomb and bomb and bomb. Let's go to um, your poem about Gaza uh, with everything that's going on right now. I think it's uh, particularly important to hear. Live from Gaza. Funeral, these headlines, they're insidious and the facts, the theatricality of chaos, our land, our traumas, rights to self-defense until complete quiet, yesterday and today and tomorrow. Report the stories of siren, shelter, monster, mayhem, and death toll. The bias of those under bombardment, the false equivalents, the certainty in script and circumstance, in distortion, in the twitch and spasm, the absolute lie, no, the absolute loss, telling the truth and power of the narrative, the maybe in the testimony, the complicated in the detail, the question in alleged, the myth in question. Existence is assault. Is escalation, it's conflict, it's dozens killed, it's airstrikes. Investigation, it's children, it's shield, it's the militants, it's schools, it's sides. Gaza is retaliation, it's the buildings, it's humanitarian crisis, it's strip, it's ceasefire. Freedom, it's sand, it's world, it's cage. Is murder, is ours. Existence is assault, is escalation, is conflict, is dozens killed, is airstrikes, is investigation, is children, is shield, is the militants, is schools, is sides, is Gaza, is. Retaliation is the buildings, is humanitarian crisis, is strip, is ceasefire, is freedom, is sand, is world, is cages, murder, is ours, was. You're listening to 3CR. We just listened to Di Cousins interview Sarah Soler, an Australian poet. Her first 
full-length poetry collection is called The Flirtation of Girls. And you can listen to Spoken Word on Thursdays from 9am to 9.30. And we're now going to go to a song, um, but there is a language warning on this one. So if that's a problem for you, just tune back in three and a half minutes. It's the song called I Can't Breathe by Dobby featuring Barker. Sick of having to explain myself They want to know the history, the pain might help They making me wild, need to restrain myself If I were you, I would educate myself Oh no! They want me to hate myself Degrade, dismiss, and erase myself They said Australia and America's not the same I say David Dungay, they don't even know the name That's bullshit, write to your member, tell them what's happening You gotta challenge the white settler narrative Got a lot of books that call us nomadic savages Maybe that's a connection to them attacking us Government thinking up any other solution But truth leads to treaty and revolution Killers acquitted, your silence is killing Give us your platform so your people can listen First came the massacres, then came the mission then stole the children, then filled the prison No wonder our people do not trust the system Over 400, not one conviction, shame No justice and no peace They won't charge the police They both said, I can't breathe They both said, I can't breathe No justice and no peace They won't charge the police They both said, I can't breathe They both said, I can't breathe Die when you choked him on his back in the pen means it never happens again some of these cops must have been bullied in pe to kill mob that's why kaepernick took a knee donald trump's calling that a lack of respect but what do you call a knee to the back of your neck huh this, this shit's as bad as it gets because some of these coppers really don't know how to protect and it's legitimized see they try to minimize genocide and all my twitter fights because the revolution televised yo no justice and no peace they won't charge Been blame me for it, then expect me to be silent and then thank you for it. I ain't thankful, they've been killing my people by the masses, and I'm fed up to the neck by you right wing fascists. I feel anger when my people feel anger, that's connection. We're angry for a reason, cause our babies need protecting. I'm scared to send them out, cause their color is a weapon. When we walk through the streets, people somehow feel threatened. We only want the system to be civilized. You televise your point of view, then feed the shapes full of lies. You bought the divide when you set up all the missions, and you still cause divide, killing my people in prison. I'm sick of it, sick and tired of the thick of it. Why you out here? Well, I really appreciate you giving your perspective, mate, because people in Australia don't have the understanding of the, the history of police killings. And that was the track 
I Can't Breathe by Dobby featuring Barker. At midday on Saturday, the 20th of January, 3CR presented a live broadcast from the Tanaminawait and Melbohina commemoration held at the Tanaminawait and Melbohina monument on the corner of Victoria Street and Franklin Street in Melbourne. So you'll listen to Robbie Thorpe presented and the um, talk is like presented by Joseph Toscano from Atticus World this week. The convener, Tanaminawait and Melbohina Commemoration Committee. Um, the event also features speeches by Janet Galvin, Bunwarung, Ted White, Robbie Thorpe, Gunai Kanai, Uncle Telgum Edwards, Tongarung, Melbourne City Councillor Olive, Olive Ball, Jacob Rumbayak, the Minister for Foreign Affairs and the Federal Republic of West Papua. I'll say thanks to Joe. He's been the main driver. And his um, beloved wife as well. They, they put a lot of time into this. And the other com committee members as well. And 3CR, Community Radio. You know, it's been very much a part of making this happen. And we need to do that. We need to tell the true story about this country. You know, just going to Tas what they call Tasmania was um, I think a, a guy called Mark Twain went over there at one stage and he wrote a book. He wrote a story and it was called The War of the Worlds. I think I got that right. I'm not sure if that, he was a, that was Mark Twain or someone else, but he based the story of Tasmania on that book. And it was pretty uh, devastating because that's what it is, folks. War of the Worlds for our people. Now... Back in 19, 18, 1802, they tried to set up a settlement here. David Collins, Lieutenant David Collins. And if you look at all the history of colonial Australia, it's all about military. Lieutenant Cook, Lieutenant Collins, Captain Swanson, Lonsdale, everything is military. What can't we understand about this occupation here? It's not just a small country, it's a continent. Probably a hundred times the size of Palestine. And a list of massacre sites that go along with that as well. And what's going on, Oz? It's catching up to you. You can see that, can't you? You know, I, I just want to uh, acknowledge and say thank you to South Africa. You know, you would not believe it. 20 years ago that it was going to be South Africa taking on places like Israel. You know, South Africa adopted the apartheid law from this country in 1950 because it worked so well here. And our people were decimated from being 100% of the population to about 1%. That's genocide in anyone's language. What's wrong with you? Australia, it's a crime scene. And what part are we playing in it? Who's benefiting from this crime? And we never gave consent. And we human beings, right? We've sorted that out, haven't we? We're human beings. No consent. No treaties. So where does the white man 
and all the colonisers in behind him get their jurisdiction over this land? Simple question. This man here asking the question about jurisdiction for the last 10 years in these courts here can't answer the question. Everyone should do it. You need that clarified. Now, we're lawful people. We had established law. We were a socially organised society for 100,000 years at least. Ceremonial burials. We were able to look after our children, our old people. And we didn't need to be managed by colonisers and invaders. And how badly did they do that? All making a quit out of our misery and perpetuating it. That's why these things are so important. I really want to say thank you to everyone who has come over the years, people today. You know, thank you. Really, I really do mean that. Because our day's coming, folks. And there's a lot to clean up here. You know, let's talk about the mounted native police force. Death squads like no other. Here. And also, I don't know if you want to take this one on, Joe, but there was a guy called Tullamarina. Anybody heard of Tullamarina? He burnt the jail down. That's a celebration. That's recognition. The first jail in Melbourne was burnt down by a Woiwurrung man. And he got all his brothers and anybody else who was in that jail out. That's a hero. Apparently he went that way and took flight. I think that's why they call it Tullamarine up there. Remember that every time you go on a flight. The resistance of Aboriginal people. It's never ended. It might be more... It's not the, uh, the, the brutal genocide that was going on back in the day. It's more sophist and sophisticated these days. And we're still struggling against it. Now, our population in Victoria went from 100% to about 0.01%. That's genocide, folks. That's genocide. The most heinous of all known crimes. And what are we doing about it? Watching all this grow. This is rubbish. It's all on the back of our people, too. Reckon we can get into one of these joints? Nah. Australia has pride in genocide. It really does. You can see it in them. Not you, mob. This is the, the difference. There is conscientious people there. In fact, there's a whole reservoir of conscientious people in this country. If you remember the reconciliation march, there was a million people there. What happened? Not that I believe in reconciliation. You need to deal with the real issues like ending the hostilities against Aboriginal people officially and making sure everyone on this planet knows about the war that's going on here in this country. Now, this is what gives emboldened people like Israel and others, other fascists around the world, think they can do what Australia did and Britain done, right? Stop them here. Stop genocide in your own backyard before we go mouthing off about anywhere else in the world. Clean up your own backyard, Australia. And that means supporting people like Teljum, arguing the question about their, their jurisdiction. So 
pretty fundamental, folks. You know, after all this time I've been involved in Aboriginal politics, I arrived at these three things. I call it the black GST. The issues are genocide, the issues surrounding genocide in this country, the failure to acknowledge the sovereignty of our people in this country and the lack of a treaty consent. Now, if you haven't got treaties or consent, you haven't got jurisdiction. I hope you're telling the judge that. <laughs> I certainly am. Yeah. But, you know, we need to keep doing this. This, there's lots of sites around here that are important to be marked. In fact, there's, there's, there's hundreds of massacre sites all across the state of Victoria. That's the true story. Then why can't we go start, begin to heal those places? That's what the local community and Aboriginal people can do together, if they're fair income, right? And it's not going to go on too much longer. Now, it's the end of the day. You've got the climate collapse going on. And, and the climate's being destroyed because the disrespect of the customary law of this land. You think that would have happened if you recognised our law? No. It's all about greed, selfishness. Australia, your day's coming. So you better tell us where you stand in this country. Because as you can see, what's happening in South Africa against Israel, that's the forerunner to this country's genocidal history. So it's coming. If you want to do something to support Aboriginal people, come to an Invasion Day rally. It's called Invasion Day for a reason. We're not sharing no spirit at this point of time. It's a bit premature, and so is, so is a treaty. You need to establish that truth-telling. The truth. You need to establish the truth first before you do anything, anytime, anywhere. So that's what it's got to begin with. The truth. If Australia can do that, well, we're taking a step in the right direction. And we're not going away. So come and join us on Invasion Day. We're going to invite the Palestinian people from Australia or from Victoria to come and join us on that day. And we want to share that, that platform with them. Also, West Papua. In any other place that's been oppressed and genocided. Because this is how Western liberal democracies operate. So-called democracy. I'll tell you one thing about democracy. That's white pile of shit. Right? Because we've got law already. It never changes. We don't have to sit around discussing shit. We already know the law. We've got established law. It's time you recognise it, Australia. You know, this is enough. Enough people to tip over this pathetic, racist occupation called Victoria. Doesn't need much. They've got nothing to stand on. No spirit. No, no justification. We need to get off our hands and knees, folks. It's not a convict penal colony anymore, is it? It is. It is, to some degree. It is. It's all about jails. If you go down to that Lara and there, Geelong, there, it's, it's jailhouse city down there. They're building jails for youth. What's that about? You know, 
Grandpa can't get a house in his own country. It's a joke. And we're all demeaned and diminished as a result. We're all of us. End of the day, the land will tell you what the real story is. The land is the boss. Our people understand that. That's why we've got to look after it and respect it. If you don't do that, you know where we're all going. And you know what you're leaving for your children too. See? This land is not yours, Australia. It belongs to the original people, where there's about 300 independent, sovereign black nations exist. We want our rights recognised when you're ready. Now, today. Make it today. Thank you. And thank you. And that was Robbie Thorpe at the Tunnaminawe and Malbahina commemoration on the 20th of Jan. And that was held at the Tunnaminawe and Malbahina monument on the corner of Victoria Street and Franklin Street. So I'm just going to give everyone a bit of a recap of, of today's show. Um, first up, we had Sonia speaking to Richard Weatherby, who's a community activist who's worked with Greenpeace and Friends of the Earth in Europe. And they spoke about the proposed amendments to legislation that governs climate-related financial disclosure. And then we had um, Annie McLaughlin speaking to Greta Carroll from Ocean. Um, and they mentioned some of the groups and a recent action that um, people were doing in the Otway Basin um, to try and block and fight against seismic testing in the Otway Basin and the consequences for ecosystems and the environment, if that is to go ahead. And then we heard from Di Cousins, who interviewed Sarah Soler, who's an Australian poet and um, has a full-length poetry work called The Flirtation of Girls that has just come out. And you can listen to the spoken word from 9 to 9.30 on Thursdays. This is Michaela speaking. Thanks for listening to 3CR Breakfast. Thanks, Grace. Thanks, Zoe, and also thanks to Sonia. Um, all those links to the interviews and the hyperlinks will be available on the Wednesday Breakfast webpage once the podcast is up later on today. And to take us out, we've got Archie Roach with Love Is Everything. Thanks for listening and stay tuned for Stick Together after this and we'll see you next week. 3CR Breakfast would like to thank the New International Bookshop, Melbourne's independent radical bookstore and venue, for their financial support of this program. You can find Nibs in the basement of Trades Hall in Victoria Street, Carlton. Keep up to date with upcoming events at nibs.org.au.
Or is it just a mask? Hiding what we don't want the world to see Like all our faults and insecurities Oh, love can pick you up and slap you down Love, the one true love. 